And I want to talk about a little bit, we're in Christmas time, obviously, and we're doing Christmas messages because that's what you're supposed to do. And uh, I think about this, I mentioned this last week, it's so hard because everybody knows Christmas so well, but I want to talk about an Old Testament passage today that deals with this that I think is, is very appropriate. I was thinking, you know, earlier we sang um, that Christ's love is on display for all to see. And I, and, I, and I was thinking about that because now, you know, who, is the, who are the people that are helping spread Christ's love? It's Christians. That's who it's supposed to be. And interestingly, this is the time of year where for many people it can be very difficult. Many people can feel unloved and, and, and be having a difficult time at this time of year. If, if no one else, just think of people who work with the public, Right? Everybody, it's about Christmas and good cheer, and we're buying gifts for our children or our grandchildren because they're so important, and then the gifts become maybe sometimes hard to find, and people get angry, and they yell at workers, and they call customer service on the phone, and those are the people that oftentimes could most use a kind and encouraging word, an uplifting word. A few years ago, our, uh, our refrigerator died on us. And so I went to a local establishment. I'm not going to name it because I'm still mad at them. Um, And I ordered a refrigerator, and they said, it will be here. It will be delivered to your door in six days. And I was like, great, because, I mean, that's just right before Christmas, and all my kids are coming, and, uh, you know, we need that fridge. And I said, oh, don't you worry, Mr. Mosley. It's coming. So then I get a message the day before. It will be delivered tomorrow between 8 and 12. And I'm, yes, there is a God. You know, that's a stupid thing to say. And it didn't show. So I call customer service, you know, and they said, oh, I don't understand. We have it out for delivery. I, I, how could they, you know, there must be some mistake. I'm sure it'll be there tomorrow. So I said, okay. So I hung up. And a little later, I got an, I got a, I got an email saying it has been pushed back, you know, like a lot. And so, so then I called customer service again. And I said, what is going on? I, I just got this email. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Mosley. Um, there, there was, and she started telling me about this big accident on 95 and that the truck that had my refrigerator <laughs> was in that accident. I'm like, You're, you, come on, come on. You say that to everybody, you know? And so I called another one, and they gave me a different, and I got mad. So I got upset, and I was just going, this right before Christmas, you guys promised me. And then it hit me, you know, thinking about love on display for all to see. And sometimes, you know, it's not an audible voice. I can't be sure. I feel like God's talking to me because it was just like, Bob, this guy did not lose your refrigerator. He didn't do it. He's just the poor guy that has to answer all these calls. And I told the guy, I said, look, I understand. This is your job. I said, so I'm just saying, this is, this is disappointing for me, but I don't want to make this a huge thing because I know you hear this every day. And he goes, thank you. I appreciate it. I said, okay, now, now I really feel bad, right? Because <laughs> what am I going to do? Merry Christmas, you know. Uh, and, and it just hit me, you know, when we deal with issues and deal with things, oftentimes the people we talk to are not the people who did it. And so we've got to be careful as the people who are supposed to have love on display for all to see. 
We are supposed to be careful about how we do that. And, and, and the problem is we're human beings, so how can we do it? We need a power that's greater than ourselves. We need Jesus. That's the only way it can happen for us. And in the passage we're going to look at today, we're going to look at the Old Testament, and we're going to look at a passage that predicts, that talks about the coming king and, and, and Christ. It's, it's Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read it in just a moment. But one of the things I thought about is, uh, this, is a, this is a passage that is used in Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah is this incredible, uh, just incredible piece of work that deals with the coming king and the Christ there and, the, and, and, and then his death and his resurrection. Ends in what we all are very familiar with, the Hallelujah Chorus, you know. That, that's something most people have heard. But I want to tell you, in, 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 it's three parts, but in part one, and it's uh, scene three, and it's one of my favorites because it deals, it's this passage put to music. And, and I desperately want to sing it to you. But I also know that I could empty the room so quickly. But you hear, you hear this, you know, this, this uh, uh, few voices, not the whole choir. You hear this few voices, and they're saying, for unto us. A child is born, for unto us a son is given. And then they break into a very, it's a very powerful piece where they go, and his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You should look it up. It's beautiful. It's be- if you don't like opera, it's okay. It's beautiful, right? So let me read that passage to you. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. You can follow along in your Bible, on your phone, and, and uh, beginning with verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in great darkness, people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Why? For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty has accomplished this. So we're talking about the salvation of the world. This is, this is Isaiah getting this glimpse and seeing it and writing it down for us. And so there's a few things I want you to see here. First of all, I want you to see in this passage, he comes from the least of these. And this is that first verse. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress in the past. He humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So what's going on here? What does this mean? You know, you go Naphtali, Zebulon, what's going on? Galilee of the nations, way of the sea. What, 
And these are, these are, these are, they give us clues about things. First of all, Naphtali and Zebulon were the northernmost tribes of Israel. When the, when the 12 tribes of Israel came into the land, the two northernmost tribes were those two tribes. And when, when, the, uh, when oppressors started to attack, when the, when the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians came, the first attack came right through them. There were some other tribes that were kind of uh, around them, but the first attack came right through them. They were the first two uh, tribes that were just decimated multiple times by invasions. They, we, we, we read some, uh, there's, there's one uh, that's famous in the British Museum. It's a giant uh, carving on a wall, just a huge wall carving. And it talks about how the, the conqueror came through and he conquered this city and he tore these people to pieces and he took these people to slavery and he conquered this city and then he just lists cities, boom, boom, boom. And then he comes to Jerusalem and if it's in the Bible, what happens? That's the time where the army of the Lord appears and decimates the, the army that's oppressing them, that surrounded them and, and besieging the city. And so how, how, does, how do they write that in Babylon? You know, we got our butts kicked by angels. We, we didn't see that one coming, right? How do they write that? So this is how he writes it. And he says, and Hezekiah, I left caged like a bird. And then I left him. He goes, I destroyed this city. I destroyed this city. I destroyed this city. I destroyed, I left this one. That's how they handle defeat. When, a, when someone writes history, how they handle the defeat, they say, oh, I just, I just left, right? So Naphtali and Zebulon were the ones that were carried away in captivity multiple times, multiple times. So the, in the time of Isaiah, they were considered the, the forsaken tribes. They were gone. There was no one left. They were destroyed. They ceased to exist. The area, that area was a despised area. It was considered a very low. No Jew would want to live there. And if they lived there, they would like to leave. In Jesus' time, it's still a backwater area. Galileans were looked down upon. They had funny accents. They had an accent that made them stand out to people, and, uh, and it, was it was ridiculed. They tended to be poor. They were considered not to be very sharp, right? They lived in an area that was dominated by Gentiles. The Jews were a distinct minority in the Galilean area. The Gentiles dominated that area. And so that area was considered a place where it was not good to be there if you're a Jew. It was polluted by all these Gentiles. And it was called, it's called in the New Testament, Galilee of the, of the Gentiles. And that word nations here, where in, 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 this, in this verse it says Galilee of the nations, that word is simply Gentiles. That's what it is. Remember in John chapter 1, as we were going through John, Nathaniel, when they told him that this, they found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, what? Nazareth? Really? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? That's how, people, that's how other people, <laughs> even in Galilee, thought about it. Everyone has someone they look down upon. The Romans thought Rome was the center of the world, right? And anywhere else was nothing to them. Jerusalem would be some backwater capital of a small nation. People in Jerusalem looked down upon the people who lived in the countryside of Jerusalem, in the Judean countryside. They looked down upon them. The people in the Judean countryside looked down on the people who lived in Galilee. They were the lowest. It's kind of like the caste system in India, where you have these levels, and then you finally hit, there's one level. This is the bottom level. There's no one below it. 
There's no one below it. That's how they would look at that. And so think about this. For Jesus, he was born into a poor family. He was greeted not by royalty, but by shepherds who were not considered the most honorable people or the most honorable uh, um, occupations. Shepherds were considered deceitful. Shepherds were not considered reliable to give testimony in court. Shepherds were considered heavy drinkers because they spent a lot of time doing nothing, you know, just sitting around making sure the sheep don't walk away. So they were considered heavy drinkers. They were not people that people looked up to. And so he's greeted by shepherds. They bring the story of the good news. He's born to a pregnant, unwed teenage peasant girl who would be stigmatized for her whole life for that. Nothing about this screams greatness. Understand this. When we see this beautiful passage, for unto us, you know, is born. A child is born. A son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. Nothing, nothing about Jesus screams this, screams power and greatness. He has nothing going for him in the eyes of the world. Out of the humbled land, the lowest land, comes the king. Out of weakness comes strength. God brings greatness, power, and glory, and salvation to the world. Here's the key, not in a way they would expect. If there's going to be a great ruler, he should come out of Rome. God brings greatness in our lives and power and glory and salvation in our lives, oftentimes not in ways that we would expect. That's how he is. He will work in ways that will surprise us. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God does not operate the way we operate. He does not work the way this world works. He does it his way. Our world is all about the wow factor, right? It's all about having the right credentials, the right resume, the right job, the right connections, the right house, the right car, the right clothes, wear the right clothes at the right time in the right place. How do we treat people? I was writing all of this out, studying it, and this part really hit me. How do we treat people who have no wow factor? people who cannot help us in any way? How do we regard them? And here's here's what worries me. Do we tolerate them and think that we are being good by not despising them openly? Think about that. Do we just tolerate and we think I'm being good because I'm not despising this person in an open way for others to see? We think badly of them, but we dare not say it Why? Because we're good Christians. Or, or, do we respect them and be open and try to learn from them because because these are the ones God works through oftentimes in our lives. Oftentimes dealing with people who are into difficult situations, homeless people that oftentimes we deal with here and things like that. 
I have learned to be open to what God may want to say because I've found a number of times where God has challenged me through the mouths, mouth of a drunk and shaken me sometimes in, in my self-centeredness, in my thinking that I can have it together through a person that I would never expect him to do that. God works through people and in ways that we often don't expect. We have to be open to that. If we're going to be people who take following Jesus Christ seriously, we have to be open to that. So he comes from the least of these, and he is the light of the world. Uh, I forgot to write the verse down. I'm sorry. Verse 2 says this. Don't read that verse. You're not allowed. Verse 2 says this, the people walking in great darkness, and that's my fault, I didn't put it in. People walking in great darkness have seen great light, and those living on the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Oh, this is the one I really wanted to jump on, and I forgot to put it in there. Okay, so we have these people, they're walking in darkness, and they see a great light. We have these people, they're living in a land of deep darkness, but a light has dawned. And, and uh, Isaiah does something really cool here that, I, that, that, that it, to me is very interesting. What he does is he invents a word. He just makes a word up. He takes two words and combines them so that he can make up a word that has this incredibly powerful meaning. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. My father was from uh, way out in the middle of the sticks. Um, one time we went, I went and visited uh, the little town. He was with me, the little town that he grew up near on a farm. And uh, we, so he says, I'm going to take you to town. And I said, oh, great. Go, go to Donaldsonville, the town you're from. I, I've never seen it. And so we go, and there is a little gas station with two pumps you know, and there's a little store, and there's a bar, and it's a crossroads. There's no light. There's nothing. And he goes, here it is. And I was like, I was like, what? What? I thought, you know, this. He goes, this is Nowheresville. What did he do? He made up a word, Nowheresville, right? He combined some words to give an impression of something that is, you know, the least of these, or nothing, a place. And here, what he does, Isaiah does, he says, the people are walking in, people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, there's a made-up word right there, a light has dawned. And that deep darkness is a very profound word. It's a compound word, and it literally means death shadow. The people walking in death shadow. You know, we, 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 it's used in other, something like that is used for shadow of death, but this is very, very, very clear. It means death, shadow. It's a powerful word. It means people are walking and living in an existence of life, but there's no glory, no light. They're simply existing with death hanging over them. Does that remind you of anything we've been talking about in John? Bios, zoe, two kinds of life in the New Testament. Bios, simply existing. Simply living and breathing and eating and drinking. And if I was with my grandkids I, so, and pooping because they love to talk about that. Just, just simple functions of, of yourself, just living. Bios. Zoe. And Jesus says eternal Zoe is what he brings. Life that means something. Life that has a purpose. Life that has something bigger beyond me. Life that accomplishes things that will last for eternity. 
He says, you have an offer here. You're, you're bios, you're just living, but I'm offering you eternal Zoe. And here he's saying those people, they're living under death shadow. They're just existing. They're just living. And he's saying a light has dawned, a great light. He names it twice. It's a new day. John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, I am Isaiah 9. That's me. That's why they wanted to kill him. Because he said, you guys know Isaiah, that they knew Isaiah 9. Almost every Jewish person almost would have Isaiah memorized. And many would have the whole Old Testament memorized. But they knew Isaiah 9. So when he says, I am the light, no darkness, they're like, no, 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 you can't say that. And he says, I'm saying it. That's me. That's who that verse is about. Why is that so, such a struggle for them? Because not long after that, it says, eternal father. And that's too much. He's claiming too much there. The light reveals. The light exposes. You know, this can be hard. It can be hard for us. Light is what is right and is good. The question is, will we allow light to work and expose in our lives? Will we confront the hard things? Will we look with an open mind at the things we don't want to look at? Because there are people. And I know it's easy. I know the temptation, and I've struggled and fallen with it sometimes myself. It is easy to say, I'd rather walk in the dark and not be troubled by the light. Now, we don't say that. We don't say, God, I'd rather walk in the dark. We just ignore, right? We just avoid. We push it aside. I don't want to deal with that. And we don't think of it that way. What we, but what we're saying is, actually, I'd rather walk in the death shadow. That's what I want. Paul even says that to the Galatians. Foolish Galatians, why are you running back to that? Why are you running back to that? Our world would die quickly without the sun. But even so, things are dying. And the sun is slowly dying. But Jesus is saying here, I'm bringing the perfect light. And I have a promise for you, this light will never fail. It will never go out. It will never be quenched. You will never have to live in death's shadow again. And if the light shines into the dark places, then nothing is hidden in our lives. Think of the implications of that. That means we have to be people of integrity because everything will be revealed. The hardest struggle is to be the same person around people and, and then be that person when no one is watching. The same person when no one is watching. We're going to be people of the light. That's an implication. Another one is we have to live attractively now because we know the light of the world. Following Christ, he was winsome. He was attractive. People loved him. So the question is, how do we treat people? I kind of talked a little bit about that earlier. How do we treat people, especially those you don't agree with, or especially those that you have power or some sort of control over? How do you treat people? 
Another implication is we have to live courageously now. Why? Because sometimes when we represent the light, there will be pushback. People will react negatively to the light. It says men love darkness. They hate the light. Why? Because it reveals. And it can be that way if you're living for Jesus Christ. Sometimes when you're living for Jesus Christ, there will be someone who will go, I hate that you're that way. Why? Because it makes me think of how bad I am. And they won't say it that way, but that's what's going on. Another implication is this. We are to live hopefully because it's going to get better. It's going to get better. He has promised us that. And that's what's being offered here. Salvation from the death shadow. He goes on. He says in verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you. Now, here's the deal. This is, this is so typical of Hebrew poetry, right? They're going to say they're rejoicing, and they're, gonna, they're going to express rejoicing in ways that they understand, in ways that everyone around them would understand. So they're saying, as people rejoice at the harvest, they're like, yes, we the harvest is when we have festivals. The harvest is when we throw the parties, when we're done with the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. When we win a war, the armies weren't paid. Their pay was what you grabbed when the, when the battle was done. And so as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. It's not saying go out there and kill people so you can get their stuff. Right? Let's just understand that. It's just saying, this is how, this is where people rejoice. As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered. Now he's going to say, the yoke that burdens them. You know, can you see how much Jesus referred back to Isaiah 9 when he taught? My yoke is easy. The yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. We have been freed. That kind of a joy. We have been freed. Verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. He's saying there's going to be peace. No more fighting. No more war. We talked about this some um, last week, that there's this, there's this war going on, and Jesus Christ came to take care of that war. He came to free us and end it. So he comes from the least of these. Understand where he comes from. He is the light of the world. Third, he is the child who is God. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, first thing is to understand this is all about grace. You have to read this under the umbrella. Why? Because for to us is given. A child is born, a son is given. From the very start, it's all about grace. It's not about us working or doing things to earn salvation, to earn God's favor. He says you can't do it. It's just given. That's incredible. We have this baby. He comes in weakness to conquer evil to conquer the death shadow. And what is the source of this evil in our world? Basically, it is the self-centeredness of the human heart. It's all about me, me first. That's the source. And we don't have to learn it. 
right? Nobody ever has to send their kid to a lying class. They don't have to learn that. I have two grandsons right now. I got another grandchild on the way. Don't know what it is. I feel like they're being very rude to me about that, but it's their choice. I have two grandsons, right? And, and, and they are in, the world is a competition for those two. They are in constant competition. When they get out of the car, they race to see who's first to the door. First, first, I win, I win. If the older one is not going to be first, he yells, reverse today, second is first. And the youngest one goes, no, and he starts crying. You know, I'm walking with my grandson on a thin wall. You know, it's like three feet up. We're just walking because it's so scary and dangerous, right? And as soon as the other one sees, he runs up and knocks the younger one off and stands up and says, hold my hand. I'm like, I'm not holding your hand, you little killer. Look at what you, look at this. Look at this. I feel, I'm going, this is Cain and Abel. Man, this is terrible. That's a terrible, I'm, jeez, Why did I say that? That's not true. They can be sweet as anything, but sometimes. And no one taught them this. No one taught them. They made up first to the door. No one had to teach them. It's in us. So when we talk about this, this is is where it starts, the self-centeredness of the human heart. And, And here's the deal. We laugh, right? But that's us. We just hide it better. That's what we call socialization, right? I'm socialized. And what does that mean? I've learned to hide my meanness. I've just gotten, I've got like a PhD in passive aggressive so that I come off looking good and someone else is hurt. How does that work? It's so awesome, right? This, we're just better at it. And so what happens? If Jesus decides I'm going to destroy all evil, Who's left? Who's left? Nobody. He comes in strength and destroys evil. What does he do? He comes in weakness. He comes as the lamb. He's crucified in our place. This salvation, this light is a gift. And the only way to get it is to freely admit that you need it. Isn't that interesting? Because let's face it, you know, if you think about this, some gifts are hard to receive because they say something about you. Let's say, let's say a friend gives me, let's say one of you, my good friends, you give me a a gift for Christmas. It's a book. How to Be a Better Friend. Yeah, by Patricia Payne in the butt, right? And I say, oh, thank you, right? Or somebody gives me another... Body odor, how to defeat it, right? Okay, so now I see something, right? I see something. I'm obnoxious and I smell bad. This is what I'm being told by these wonderful gifts. You could be a better friend. You smell bad. This is what I'm being told. And what do you have to do to truly be thankful and accept this gift? What do you have to do? You have to admit. I need to get off this page here. I just am realizing I'm talking and no one is looking at me. They're all like, is it really say Patricia Payne in the butt on now? Right. Um, What do you have to do to receive that gift? You have to admit something about yourself. I struggle with this. I have a problem with this. And I'm just using the silly ones, not the real ones that we struggle with and the real ones that we have a problem with. 
And so some gifts are hard to accept. The gift of salvation is a lot like this. Because the gift of salvation requires that we swallow our pride because salvation shows us how bad we are. It took the death of the Son of God, of that baby, to save us. So that I could say, I am a sinner. I do need grace. I give up control of my life. We are to be the people who are marked by their humility, their willingness to admit wrongs. One of the most difficult things as a parent, excuse me, one of the most difficult things of a parent, one of the most difficult things that I had to do with my kids was to tell them that I was wrong about something. That we, I had told them to do something or I made something and they came and found out I'm wrong. And I, to make sure that they understood and make sure that I understood, I got in the habit of getting down on one knee and speaking to them face to face. So it's not me up there talking down to them. It's me saying, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Because in the weakness is where we find the strength. In the weakness of this child is where the strength is. And this gift of salvation, we have to swallow our pride. We have to admit things. And Jesus shows us, Philippians chapter 2 is such a beautiful illustration of this. Jesus shows us his greatness because he descended to our level. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't know. I think of these weird things, and I think sometimes, unfortunately, I could, you know, get close to the line or verge on heresy sometimes thinking about these things. But I think about this baby and that God is in this baby and imagining the the Son of God going, oh, man, this is what it's like. This is what it's like. And I don't know about that, but I think this is one of the great comforts for us. Last week, we talked about that. He knows how it feels. He knows how it feels. He was betrayed. He was stabbed in the back by a friend. He was, I mean, I don't know how you, he was lynched by a false court. All those things, all those the, the horrific parts of what we deal with, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was injured, he suffered pain. He descended to our level, and it shows us his greatness. And now, as Christians, we're to walk in the light, and part of walking in the light is descending to other people's levels, being willing to be with the least of these be willing to serve, be willing to love, be willing to listen to, be willing to be changed. So Jesus wants to do this to us. But here's the thing, and this passage flows so beautifully this way. How can he do it? What are his qualifications? And and the, the next part of this passage is him talking about what his qualifications are. Let me get to uh, verse 6. There we go. Because this is, what, this is what's going on here. And I've talked about this before. I've talked about how actually I know some theologians that I've read think you could take all eight of these words and make them separate. Wonderful. Counselor. God. 
I'm going off the screen now. Mighty, that line tells me where, how, far, how far not to go. Mighty, you know, you get, but they also can flow together. T- together, they're, they're, they're just beautiful, and they, they work so well. And so this first one I want you to see is, is the word wonderful. And it's a, it's a very strong word. It's a, it's a word for just absolute wonder, just having your, uh, having your mind blown. It's the word pele. It's used in this passage. Let me get to that passage here. Here it is. In Judges 13, 18, they asked the angel of the Lord, which we think really is, is God himself appearing, what's your name? And he said, why do you ask me my name? It is beyond understanding. Beyond understanding is that word pele. You can't handle, here we go, sounds like a movie, right? You can't handle my name. You can't handle my name. It's too wonderful. It's beyond. It's a, it's a clear indication of his deity. I mean, this is just, we're getting, his deity is going to be hammered here. He is the wonder. It is beyond our ability to understand. More than, it's more than, much more than extraordinary. There's nothing that can compare to it. The word's like, there's nothing that can compare to this. The second word there is counselor. It's this idea, the fount, the beginning of all wisdom. He is the beginning and the end of all wisdom. There is no one else you should be listening to above Jesus. And next it says, um, mighty God. Now, actually, in the, in the word order, it says God, the mighty. The word mighty is a very powerful word. And so first, it's just that L, that word meaning God. It's a clear, another declaration of divinity. This baby is going to be God. But this word mighty is the word that would be for your hero, your champion. He's God, and he is our champion. Now, this keys us back to something. You remember when David fought Goliath, all right? That is a prime example in the, in, in the ancient world of what was called champion warfare. That is, and this was actually, you know, it's kind of smart. They realized the blood and destruction that would happen if our two armies came together would, would, would crush us both. Even the winner, you know, would, would go away so much weaker for other nations to pick off. And so sometimes they would say, we got our champion, you got your champion. Here's what will happen. They fight to the death. Whoever wins, they win. The other side, we're not going to kill you all. We're just going, you just pay us tribute for 20 years. You know, pay us this much. That was so typical in those days because warfare was so brutal and so horrific. And they realized if you kill all the workers, no one's left to do the work. So your land that you conquered is now worthless. Workers mean something. So you have champion warfare. This is very key for us because here's the deal. Your champion fights for you. So when we get to the story, I'm really going into this. Okay, David and Goliath, you're not encouraged to be David. You know, go and be a David, fight for the Lord. No, we're the army that's afraid of Goliath. We're sitting back on the, on the sidelines going, go, David, go, David, please, God, help David. You know, that's us. That's who we are. We're not David. He's the champion. I can tell you right now, you do not want me to be a champion for you in anything. In anything. I'm not a champion. He's our champion. David is our champion. We are the poor saps and sapettes. It just hit me as saps, a male. We're all the people standing on the sideline. 
going, and what happens? David wins, and he turns, and basically he's saying, I won the battle for all of you. I won the battle. You reap the rewards. You reap the rewards. You didn't fight. You didn't do a thing. You came here and got scared. That's a whole thing you've done for two months. And I won the battle, and you all reap the rewards. That's what a champion does. That little baby is God, our champion. In Hebrews, it's reinforced. He says that Jesus, it's translated, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. That word author is archagos, which is a Greek word for champion. Jesus is our champion. We don't fight the war. He fights the war. He wins the battle. And he turns to us and says, I won it for you. Here you go. It's a gift of grace. This is so important for us to understand these things. So we have a champion. We are not the people winning the battle. Our champion has won the battle for us. He won the victory. We reap the rewards. We can't earn the rewards. We can't earn any part of the victory. And so this child that is born is literally God. You could say our champion who has won the battle for us. Next word there is everlasting. It's the word for eternal. It's, the, it's saying there is this one is outside of time. He exists outside of time. He is not bound by time like we are. And the next word is father. And this, again, is one of the early verses, one of the verses the early church wrestled with when they began to come up with the concept of the Trinity because this puzzled people. He loves like a father. We're his children. Some say it could be translated the father of eternity because it's the word for eternity and it's the word for father. The one who saves us and shepherds us and fathers us into eternity with him. So these powerful words here. Then the word prince, which is just a title of power. But the question is, okay, if he's a prince and it's a title of power, what is the power he has? Peace. Peace. He brings peace. It's the word shalom. It's the word for completeness, for wholeness. It's a word for cessation of warfare. There's a war between mankind and God. We talked about that the self-centeredness that is the root of all our sin. Isaiah says later, all we are sheep, are like sheep who have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, his own way. What is that? That's that self-centeredness, that's that sin. And he has brought now peace. The war's over. But stopping the war is not enough, right? Stopping the war, we, we, <laughs> we were supposed to have learned that in World War I. Stopping the war does not stop wars. Something else has to be dealt with. The cause of the war has to be dealt with. Our sin, and that's what our prince has done. He deals with the root cause of the war and defeats it forever. You know, this is Christmas. This passage, this is Christmas. This is what it's all about. It's, you know, it's, it's not like Ricky Bobby. I like praying to that little baby Jesus because he's cute and sweet. He's God. He's wonderful. He's the counselor. He's God, our champion. 
That's who he is. Incarnate, greatness, descended to this earth and became small. Verse 7, of the greatness of his government and his peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty has accomplished this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty has accomplished this. This is what Christmas is about, the zeal. Zeal is, is the, word, the Hebrew word for passion. God has a passion for you, for you. And he wants you to be involved in what he's doing. What is he doing? Establishing and upholding justice and righteousness. Jesus expressed it when he said what we'd call the Lord's Prayer. It's this idea, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, bringing up there, down here. Up there, down here. That's what we're doing. Christmas is God's zeal for you. And he descended to the lowest level to show his greatness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter in Isaiah that just is so brilliantly written and so powerful to read. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't just listen and be interested and walk away and forget, but that we would be people who going from here out would be people of integrity, people who walk in the light, people who look to the needs of others, who love to serve. And as we do that, we we fulfill what you're doing and we become more like your son, Jesus. So Father, help us to want that, to love that, to strive for that. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in our lives to empower us and enable us to do things that will make a difference in other people's lives that would last for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.